Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today, our mandate comes from 1 Samuel, the second chapter. This was a prayer of Hannah with a rejoicing heart to the Lord, who is the horn of our salvation, and as she exalted him and her, mouth was enlarged over her enemies. In the verses 8, she gives a very profound testimony. Very profound testimony. Very profound. And when I read it, the Spirit of the Lord started to minister to me just there. And it's out of that that I want to share with us what God is saying this afternoon. The Bible says he raises up the poor out of the dust and lifted up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. Hallelujah. Somebody say amen. Such a beautiful portion of scripture. The Lord lifts or raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the dunghill and he makes them sit among princes to make them inherit the throne of glory. Such a very, very deep thought. Very, very deep thought. Now, then why do I choose to share this? Because as a pastor in my years of counseling and ministry, I could not help to notice sometimes as people come to me for counseling or in some instances when I'm praying over some of our members in the church and the Lord would show me for example an individual who is dealing with bitterness and offense because they look at their neighbor and their neighbor is thriving is progressing maybe in the academic world or their financial world or their marital destinies or their, you know, careers and whatever it is God has set out or in ministry. And then somebody sees this person they have been going to church with, praying with, went to Bible school with, or maybe went to university with, married in the same time, but he sees them progress. They come out and they see the person they married with, went to school with, is driving out with a very expensive car. And they're going back without a car. And then they're invited for a housewarming and then they're seeing babies and and then it starts to bring some offense and bitterness in the heart of a person. Some come for counseling and they say, I can't keep up with this. Or some even don't. But you can tell as a spiritual man that something is killing this person and they carry bitterness. Either toward God or the person which is blessed. If it's not bitterness, the pendulum swings on envy and jealousy. Some become envious and jealous of other people's successes. And then somebody stops talking to you. They stop relating with you because they are seeing the glory of God on your life. 
and they are disturbed by what's progressing on you and it's not working on their lives. And then they sit back, if they are married as a couple, they start discussing. Oh, I think this person is stealing. I think this person, I had in a rumor that in their company, they are robbing money. Oh, and then you start backbiting people. It's not true what you're saying, but you're just envious, you're jealous. Because somebody is going in places you have not been. So without understanding what I'm going to share, you're either going to always find yourself on the side of offense and bitterness for God and man, or on the side of envy and jealousy. God says he is the one that raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. Now, the biggest challenge with you fighting or carrying bitterness or offense against that person who is blessed of God is that you're fighting the very God, listen, who you want to bless you. Does that work? Can you fight the very anointing that you want to attract on your life? That's exactly what happens with some of our believers. And I want to show you exactly what happens to promote, to progress, to increase, to establish, to position others in such places and leave some people behind schedule in life. You know, I always tell people, if you're a spiritual person, you can tell when you're behind schedule in life, in any aspect of your life, because you have the Holy Spirit, the bearing mark that aligns and calibrates our destiny to conviction, to help us understand whether we are in the purposes and the timings of the Spirit, the periods and timetable of heaven, or whether we are out of that tangent. And the secret to this portion of scripture is, he sets them to sit among the princes, and I want you to underline the word, and make them inherit the throne of glory. That means such people have connected to the operation, the administration, the manifestation, the expression of God's glory. This is the power of glory on a man. When you bear the glory of God, such things start to happen to you. So I want to take us through a journey to help us understand this and appreciate it and teach you how to operate in the glory of God. Because if you don't, you'll never see distinct or the fundamental elevations that you require in this life. All these jealousies and wars you see in the church of Jesus Christ and business world and, you know, in whatever aspect political is as a result of people who don't know the secret of 1 Samuel 2.8. This is the secret. This is the secret. You're seated, but there's this person in church you hate. And if you study it intricately, why you hate them? It's not because they did anything to you you realize you started to hate them from the day they got a new car. You started to have issues with them from the day they were announced on the altar that they were going to get married. From the day they bore a child and something turned. And from that time, you've never been the same again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And to help us understand this, I'm going to take us through a conversation of separating two things that I see many people connect and have never understood the difference. That is, the anointing and the glory. The anointing is different from the glory. Not all anointed people function under the same weight 
of glory as others. But all who know how to function or operate under the glory of God carry a certain anointing. Let me say it again. Not all anointed carry deep weights of glory. But all who carry deep weights of glory carry an anointing. Because the anointing, and I don't want you to forget this, precedes the glory. But yet not all who are anointed have transitioned into the place of certain weights of glory, even though they are anointed. I have seen less anointed men functioning in higher glories of the spirit, weightier glories. And I've seen very highly anointed men and women who are functioning in very light weights of glory. So I want to show us how. And to help us understand this, let me begin by defining those two worlds. Let me begin with the anointing. In the Hebrew language, we have a word called mishkau. Mishkau. And mishkau is the word to mean the anointing. Okay? If you read Exodus chapter 40 verses 15, he talks about the anointing on Aaron's sons. The Bible says you shall anoint them as thou didst anoint their father that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing, listen, for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. Their anointing. Now when you hear the word their anointing, it means that the anointing is distinct to an individual or a group of individuals as they are called uh, to a specific office. And so, in essence, that word mishkau means a consecratory gift. It's the ability given to a believer by God to be able to execute the office in which God has called him. To be able to execute the office in which God has called them. So if God has called you, for example, as a priest, he wants to give you divine enablement. And that divine enablement is called the anointing. Somebody shout hallelujah. That divine enablement is called the anointing. It's the furnishing that God gives you and all the necessary powers that should come in the administration of the purpose for which God has called you on the earth. If you are a prophet, he furnishes you with an anointing and that anointing manifests itself in gifts like word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and the designing of spirits. That's the office of the prophet. Those three things are consistent. To design spirits, to get a word of knowledge and a word of, of wisdom. And it could come through open visions, it can come through dreams. Whatever it is, that's really the function. That is simply a gift given because of the office given you. And remember the Bible tells us that the giftings and callings of God are without repentance. Now, many of you who don't know how the anointing functions, and I wish I had time to explain how the anointing works, you'd realize that when a man is anointed to, for example, prophesy, to uh, see in the spirit, a seer, if somebody's anointed as a seer, even if they don't pray and fast, they can see. 
they can see. But there are levels of vision. And I'll get to that a bit later. Underline that. That is why soon I promise that I'm going to teach the place of how you can receive grace, but receive it in vain. Or frustrating it. Frustrating the grace of God on your life. Some of you, you have been so graced by God, but you have received the grace in vain. So it's not as functionally effective as it ought to be in your life. Or some of you have received it, but you're frustrating it. You don't allow the full expression of the gift of God on your life. But when it comes to the anointing, everyone according to where God has called you, you have been given the provision for the grace to function in it through the place of the anointing. Now, I'll give an example of the apostolic. The Bible speaks of the signs of the apostolic anointing, all right? Paul says, truly the signs of the apostle are out among you all. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Signs of an apostle. That means the apostolic mandate on him as Paul was demonstrated among all through much patience. The apostolic office is a very patient office. We are patient with people. We are patient with many things. So if you find a, a person who claims to be apostolic, but they cannot be patient with things and people, that person either has not yet matured or uh, has received this in vain. Or He's not even an apostolic person, but we are patient people and long-suffering, it's enduring. You know? And that is why Paul says we are like the scum of the earth. We are like considered last. I can be among men who think to know and I know more than them but then among them I would appear to know nothing because the office sometimes requires that to fulfill the higher purposes of God he says as unknown yet well known as having nothing yet possessing all things as deceivers yet true as dying and yet will live as chastened and not killed that's the way of the apostolic. Sometimes there's that maturity, you know, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. You'll find yourself sometimes, you have to debase yourself to the lowest person. And, you know, if somebody's not mature enough to design that, they can easily take you for granted because you have gotten to their level. That doesn't mean that you don't know who you are, or that you've not been ranked high, but it comes with the office and requires a certain humility in your spirit. Apostolic spirits are usually deeply humble people. If you find an apostle who is overly, you know, exalted, eh? some of them either have not yet understood the office or they don't stand in the office, it will just bestowed on them. Because you're a messenger, you're just a messenger. But he also speaks of signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Those are things that naturally happen with the apostolic. We're natural demonstrators of the spirit. Signs, wonders, and deeds, that's natural with us. But that doesn't mean that because it's natural with me, therefore, I should not respect the place of stirring that gift to increase the magnitude of its function, the propensity of its effectiveness to those that I minister to. So the gift is there, but you can stir it. The Bible speaks of stirring the gift of God, which is in you. These are things that you can accelerate and accentuate when you learn the pattern and principle of the way. But... What I wanted to share with us, when I was little, younger, just coming to the gospel, the church where I went to 
they didn't believe in signs, wonders, mighty deeds to a certain extent. In some instance, they had a very um, singular view, a one or two dimensional view on that. So they were not really tough demonstrators of spirit. So I start to read about demonstrations of spirit, but I'd never seen them in my local church as, you know, but I remember one of those days I'm called to a full gospel church just near my home. And they invite me on this overnight. Oh, there's this young man who can teach the word. So I come in that meeting just to share the word. And I, I shared the word. It was an overnight. And we get to the point where I'm finishing the service at, to preach. I mean, and I then have to lead these people through a prayer. So I tell us to stand up. And the moment I tell them, the power of God hits that room. So, 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 so powerfully. But I remember probably the, the leader of the program and one or two people were sober. The rest of them were on the floor out, slain by the power of the Holy Spirit. I had never seen it in my life. Never seen it. I didn't go in that meeting to do it. It wasn't something that I was doing out of the liberties of the spirit of the man with understanding or trying to experiment to see whether it would work. I simply went to share a word and I thought we're going to have a closing prayer and then we're going to go home. And the power of God hits that whole building. And people linger in that glory and presence for quite a long time. And it was about uh, three or four hours later, some of them started to sober up and stuff. So some of the people who attended that meeting, because they saw the power of God so mighty, they started to spread rumors. This guy might be using powers from another source. And so rumors started moving within the community that this guy, I was all out, that I was a devil worshiper, a young boy, you know. So I called my brother, still a teenager, now, my brother, my elder brother, had gone ahead of me in the things of the Spirit. And he was as well doing ministry, still doing ministry as a man of God. So I remember calling him. I sat him down because we used to share a room. I used to sleep here. I used to sleep there. And there's just one thing I knew I used to do. I learned to pray. I really learned to pray. And I remember those times I would sit sometimes in my room. I returned back. Uh, from wherever I've been and I sit in the room from 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 1, 2 at night. 6 to 8 hours just alone with God. And that's a life that I practiced. When you learn that place of solitude and I tell people if you want to understand one of the highest levels of liberty in Christ is when you can desire to be alone without the need to spoil yourself without the need to waste yourself, without the need to do some ungodly thing, but you are alone. It takes so much. So for me, in my earlier years of consecration, that's the one thing that I learned. And it's the thing I insist, especially of our generation, because I realize they are this younger generation than us, even though I'm still young, this younger, way younger generation than us actually does not know how to pray. They can't tarry. They don't know how to sit in the presence of God for a long time, but they can sit on the phone for hours, they can communicate to their friends, they can watch movies and play video games, but they can't sit in the presence of God for four, five, six, seven, eight hours. It's a hard thing. And it's even worse for some of you if you're already older. If you're above that, it even becomes more complicated because with life comes responsibilities, work, family, and those other things that sort of coagulate your conviction. But, so I used to just sit up in the night and pray. And that's the stalk that really begat the things you see. That's the, the stock, the group of people that I have grown up with, people like Apostle Emma. These are people who know how to pray. People like Pastor Modesta, those are the first people that I met in my earlier years of ministry. 
These are people that we could tarry with in meetings. We used to have a group of people. It was easy for us to pray. We used to have a Thursday evening in university where we'd meet for three, four hours to pray. So for us, prayer was not a problem. Prayer was not a problem. And until you can pray for a certain amount of time and just be with God, not just fulfilling all righteousness as to say, oh, I'm praying because I heard that they said we should pray. But that place where you really long for the intimacy of the Spirit and you want to be one with God, you can never fully experience what God can do through you. Some of you, you have never even scratched the surface of who you are. The world has not seen you yet. They have no clue what you're able to do because you've never exerted yourself. You've never expanded your spirit to that place of yieldedness. So that's all I knew to pray. Still do. Although now sometimes it's late in the night when I wake up and in those instances where I feel the spirit you know, provoke me to do that. It's a bit harder as you grow, but you have to learn to create that time in you. Are you following what I'm saying? It's a very important thing for you to master. If you can learn at least to pray for an hour and then get into three hours of being in the presence of God, once you hit the three hour mark, it's easy to do six, eight. Once you learn that, that's why I said, if I say it at the sound of my voice, and whoever has ever prayed or has had a consistent life of praying for six to eight hours, put up their hands, you'll see very few people here. Because that's not a place we can. But if I ask, has somebody ever watched a season on TV? And you woke up in the morning, sat with your cup of tea and a chapati, and then started watching the whole day, you'd see hands up. You can watch a season for 12 hours. Just watch, get up, Go to the toilet, come back. Watch, go to the toilet, come back. So that's all I knew. So when they call me cult, I, I remember I called my brother, asked him, my cult. Imagine that kind of question. Am I cult? But that was, I was really asking in innocence. Why? He said. He said, because some people call me cult. Ask him what? He asked me, why do they call you cult? He even laughed. See? Why do I call, call you cult? Told him I was in this meeting and this happened and he said, ah. <laughs> Tell me that's called the anointing, the demonstration, the signs and wonders that follow the apostolic office. So he starts to explain to me, you know, how it works and the dimensions of that. And so I appreciated it. It gave me a confidence because during that period, I feared to demonstrate the power yet. I was so charged up. I remember one of those days in university, I stood in a corner to pray and all the people around me got slain. You understand where you're charged, but you fear to demonstrate the power. So the signs and wonders are a natural phenomenon. It's an ongoing pattern in the life of the apostolic, but it can be stirred to higher levels of demonstration. Or you can receive it in vain and abuse it. I know many people who could mightily have demonstrated the spirit. But doctrine choked the seed. It's there. I know a pastor personally who was sent out of a certain order of a church, very prominent church. Why? Been serving this church for more than 15 years or about 20. Very famous person in that big church. He's now telling me the story. And this was a church that never used to really do the demonstrations of the Spirit as much. One of those days on a Sunday, he's teaching and pa 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 pa. The anointing starts moving. 
So some people report to head office. Somebody is trying to be Benihin here. <laughs> Once, twice, thrice, and you know, he started to fall out. And it's not something he continued. I see, feel in my heart, it's not something that he really continued to pursue and ask God why this was happening in his life. Because the world can be so cruel when it finds the gifted. But it can be, like I said, accentuated. You can stir it. You can strengthen it. You can build it. There was a time when I was still young in that. So I had instances where I could have a demonstration event or sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't come. And I've had ministers who have built doctrines around, you know, uh, sometimes if God decides to move, he will move. And sometimes if he decides not to move, he won't move. Yes, true and untrue in one way. In part that it's all happening after the will of God. So if it's not the will of God, you can't demonstrate power. But on the other side of it also, that when God has gifted a man and said that I've gifted you to demonstrate the spirit, the gifting and calling of God is without repentance. You understand? If God has anointed you to heal the sick, even if he doesn't want to heal the sick, but he has gifted you to heal the sick, out of that, if you start that gift, you can actually heal the sick because his gift is without calling or repentance. He doesn't withhold and take back because you are probably not agreeable to him. It's a gift. Romans 11, 29, read the 11th verse. He says, for God's gifts and call are irrevocable. The Bible says he never withdraws them once they are given and he does not change his mind about those to whom he gives his grace or to whom he sends his call. God doesn't regret. He knows who you are. He knows whatever madness you can. But if he has gifted you with something, he has gifted it with you. And so some people then in my earlier years of ministry used to have challenges. But this brother is not like this. He's not praying like this. How come when, he, you know, he can demonstrate power? Yeah, to a certain degree when the gift is there, he's allowed to. But there's a certain dimension, a God-level dimension, not a man-level dimension, a God-level dimension, where that person as a demonstrator of the Spirit will not be able to get to because a certain authority is required according to the qualification of the assignment or the mandate on that man, not the gift. There are graces that follow our gifts, but there are graces that follow the assignment. When it comes to the assignment, there's another level of authority that's God level. It's his plan. It's like God has given you the gift of healing the sick, but he has given you the assignment of bringing revival in Uganda. Now the assignment can be revoked, but the gift cannot be revoked. Because you can say, I refuse to take that assignment. You have the choice by the way to say, I refuse to take that assignment. Now if you say, I refuse to take that assignment, that doesn't mean God will say, ah, you refuse to take that assignment. Okay, I'm not going to revive Uganda. You understand me? He will not cancel his purpose over Uganda because you have refused to obey. He will look for a man to stand in the gap. You will keep your gift, but he will give the assignment another. Are you following me, child of God? This is very important for you to know. Very, very important for you to learn early. Now, let's look at the prophetic. Let me give you an example of the prophetic. I've spoken about the apostolic, but it's something I want to share with you about the prophetic. Now, somebody says, I'm a prophet, right? And they can speak or prophesy from the general sense of what's available to man. That's what I call the man level of the prophetic. What's available to man. And that's usually in the function of the gift. Because gifts sometimes come accorded 
to the ages. You understand? For example, in this age, God gifted somebody to do Bitcoin, for example. And in a certain age, that wasn't here. Because remember, wisdom is the mother of all witty inventions. As of whether that person who invents that cryptocurrency knows God or not, is some sort of wisdom under which he must function to build such an idea, such technology, okay? Internet or Facebook or, you know, Windows. That was a divine inspiration, whether Bill Gates is related with God or not. That was a design by God through that man. But that gift came in that age. There was an age where people didn't use the internet or they didn't need your Microsoft Word. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, back to what I was saying. So there are things that are available. If, For example, if you are, even in teachers, if you're a teacher of the Word, there are oracles that are available generically in the man level for any man who is a good teacher to be able to connect to and articulate by language. That level is there. And many people function there. Many teachers of the word function there. They function in what's available. They function in the glory of the dispensation. But they're not elevated into authority to understand the place of being an available servant to pioneer or lead in the dispensation. Because even though there is a knowledge that's available for the dispensation, there's a necessity to position yourself in the ranks in the dispensation. Some people come first in the dispensation, some come last in the dispensation, but they can all attest to what's available for the dispensations. In English, you might call them the low-hanging fruits. They're in the man level. So it is with the prophetic. If you look at uh, the story of uh, Elijah and Elisha, when God was taking Elijah, every prophet in the level of the main prophetic realm knew that God was taking Elijah. Everyone knew. Every prophet who could connect to Elisha would know that God is taking his master. It wasn't a secret. Because they could access, that was the low-hanging fruit. They could access that realm. Every prophet could access it. But no prophet on the exception of Elisha knew that the man going to be taken to heaven was the horseman and chariot of Israel. That he was a man-told prophet. He carried the mantle for the preservation of the posterity of a whole nation. Only Elisha knew that. And after the crossing then and God takes Elijah and Elisha takes the mantle of Elijah, when he now parts the sea and comes across, that's when their eyes are open now to the next level. And it was known now that God shifted that kind of knowledge to man level where now every prophet could discern that Elisha carried the spirit of Elijah and that he was the horseman and chariot of Israel. But that window was open and pushed into man-level prophecy as a result of Elisha connecting to the extension of Elijah by receiving the double anointing. So if you're talking of prophecy, or prophets, for example, in our age, there's that which is available for all. Someone can know your name, your number, your relatives, your date of birth. That many prophets speak. Even us who don't claim the office speak it sometimes. Speak. And for most of the part in my earlier ministry, I used to just do that until God fine-tuned me because I'd started to destroy some people. 
and I do regret. I started to destroy a lot. I had said to go off course because I was fascinated by the pressure people put on me and I found myself performing to the demand they had toward God than giving them what God was saying. You get the difference? So it sort of makes an idol out of you and it exposes you to a vulnerability to hear from sources that were not given to you. Because the people can demand God to speak where he requires silence. And the prophet can be pushed to perform. That is why when you study church history and start to plot the rankings of the spirit, very few, very few men stand out in the prophetic anointing. Yet you see many distinctive teachers because there are things God deliberately preserves for that purpose. And I'm not saying God is against the prophets. Kenneth E. Hagin, for example, was a very, very mighty prophet, but he's remembered more of his teaching than the prophetic utterances that he made over individual cities and nations. Um, and there's a reason. And he became a source. West Africa, they are dead boyers and they were deposed. Some of the biggest churches on the face of the earth can trace their strand from Kenneth E. Hagin as a source. And so you, you can see a very long preservation there. Something very distinct. This is now for the mature. But let me come back to where I was speaking. So there are things God will reveal in the man level of prophecy. And there are things that are to the servants, the prophet. Men who are receiving beyond what the gift can give to the level of what the servant can receive. Because this place of servanthood is a place that seeks the assignment, the mandate of God. Almost 3.7. He says, surely the Lord will do nothing but reveal it in secret. Now, I want you to note in Amos, he uses the word secret. Not secrets. Plural. It's not the continuous things and fragments that we connect in the spirit because you're flowing in the prophetic. But to understand the secret, the full counsel, he says, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealed his secret unto his servants, the prophets. So he wants to help you separate the prophet who sits in the office and the prophet who is a servant of God. Because serving, let me help some of you understand this. Serving means making yourself least of all. Prophets, apostles, teachers, pastors, evangelists. Service means making yourself least. Not exalting yourself beyond. Are you following how powerful that is? Have you noticed that the newer breed of the prophetic is opposite of that? flamboyant life. It's a life that lives in heaven. It has no connection to anything on the earth. It can't feed the widow. It can't connect to an orphan. It can't hug a street kid. It can't... It's not... No, it's up there. It's to be worshipped, you know. And, and this I'm speaking as an apostle. I'm speaking from the apostolic office. Because the apostolic can never do anything against truth. If you find a true apostle, he'll never speak anything out of love. 
and genuine concern for the good of the body. So if anybody finds offense in this, it's only because they don't know my heart or the heart of God and why he calls some of us. But I can tell you the truth. Today, what we're seeing, and I'm saying this painfully, in some instances, we have seen that either some of them, because of the foundations that they had starting this course, the consecrations primal, did not open them to the things they must understand. And sadly, that they are not able to understand or appreciate that they can't understand them. Or, for some, they're not functioning under the anointing of the prophet. They're functioning under a familiar spirit. You see, I don't have time to teach about this, but I wish I really had time to help you guys understand those dynamics. Maybe I'll give you a little idea. How many of you have heard of something called a familiar spirit? Put up your hand if you have heard of something called a familiar spirit. Yeah, let me explain what a familiar spirit is. Now, familiar spirits are the word familiar comes from the Latin word familiaris, meaning domestic. All right? Meaning domestic. That means it's something domesticated. Now, these are spiritual entities that are domesticated by individuals and they are either guides, they are appointed to individuals for guidance, protection, They watch individuals and some can either be appointed or invited. So, because they are domesticated beings, these are ordained as companions. Let me explain. Like you see how God has appointed angels over us, he says he's placed charge to the angels over you to lead you, lest you dash your foot on a stone, to keep you in all your ways, how your angels go before you. Now, Satan has also designed familiar spirits as companions and friends and guiding spirits, entities, to people, witches use them, cunning folk use them. Some people carry them, but they don't know that they do carry them. Now, this familiar spirit can live, for example, with your grandfather who didn't have a relationship with God. It saw how he spoke. It saw how he ate. It lived with him. It was his guide. For all his years of life, he dies. And that spirit can look for somebody in the family to continue its responsibility as assigned by Satan. Now, some of you who are in African tradition, Baganda culture and a few cultures understand this. You remember when people used to die back in the day and somehow there is always one person who carries the spirit of that dead person? You've seen it? How many of you have heard of it? Uh-huh. So sometimes they would even either burn feathers and smoke and conjure the spirit and the spirit of your father or cousin or, or late grandfather starts to speak through this young being and starts to explain detail 
oh, before I died, I hid money uh, in the ceiling. Kindly go and pick it. And these guys go in the ceiling and find that money. You understand? Those are familiar spirits. So they can even go generationally. Somebody can die and it just roams on the earth and waits for a fourth generation of person and settles on them. A familiar spirit can even settle on a person in a lineage, in a family lineage for a thousand generations. One familiar spirit. Somebody can have something that was imported 500 years ago, 800 years ago. But it's working with them and they don't know. You just see this child doing the exact things their grandfather used to do or their grandmother used to do. Now, when somebody has a spirit of divination, such a person has the ability to connect to a familiar spirit or many familiar spirits that work with individuals. Now, let me just give an example. You had a grandfather. You're in your generation and your sister or brother has that spirit or two of them. And then they go in a service of a soothsayer or somebody with a spirit of divination or Apollos. What will happen with this person is the moment their spirit opens up, they can connect to the guides that are moving with you. And those guides come and whisper in their ears. And this man says, you come, come. He says, who is Mulumba? <gasps> That's my grandfather. Go deeper. But a familiar spirit whispered in the ear of a diviner. And who is Margaret? That's my grandmother. I see that before Mulumba, your grandfather, and Margaret, your grandmother, begot your father, it took them six years to give birth. <gasps> Go deeper. It's true. I see a shop somewhere on a road. And I see it called Mukuru. Mukuru. What is Mukulu? What is Mukulu? Mukulu was their shop. In fact, it was inherited. Their younger brother took over it. Then <laughs> 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 the prophet does. Then he just says, God is going to help you. <laughs> That's it. God is going to help you. I'm not saying everyone who says that has a familiar spirit, but I'm only trying to tell you familiar spirits can do that even more accurately than many prophets of God. If somebody can attune to it. So if you're fascinated with facts about your history, man, somebody can go 1800 and pull a familiar spirit that has lived with for seven generations. Now that's the generation. Then you get that same prophet and he can't teach. So you ask yourself, how can you know seven generations of my family, but you have no eye for the book of Romans. You can't understand Corinthians. You can't explain Jeremiah. But when they do, they make errors. They make errors. I'm sorry I'm going to say this. 
but I have to because I'm saving someone at the expense of sacrificing my person and my heart. I saw a small video of a prophet who said, some of you don't know what the prophet can do. He said, I can close a nation. I can cut off a nation as a prophet. Now he was trying to establish his rank because I think he was confusing the accuracy of the prophetic with the authority that comes from the sovereignty of divine purpose. And I could see many believed it. Now, the apostle in me knew that either this person is learning or he's not functioning under the spirit of God. And I'll explain why. A man comes to God and asks him, if there are 50 people in a city, will you write off that city? If there are just 50 righteous men within the city, will you destroy and not spare the place of the 50 righteous that are there in? And God tells him, if I find 50 righteous men, I will spare the place for their sake. This is divine counsel. This, Genesis 18, 26, that statement is called, I want you to listen to this, is called the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy carries precedence over the spirit of the prophet. You understand? The Bible says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. But some pastors think that the spirit of prophecy is subject to them. The spirit of prophecy, the Bible says in Revelation, is the testimony of Jesus the heart of God. The Bible speaks of the spirit of prophecy as the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.10. The spirit of prophecy is above any prophet. And the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Now, the spirit, your spirit as a prophet is subject to you. You can choose to speak or not speak. Express yourself or not express yourself. According to the liberties that have been given in the ambits of truth because those ambits have boundaries under which the prophet can function. So when the Bible says that the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, that at that level you can choose what you can prophesy as a prophet according to the anointing and grace given to you as a prophet. But no prophet has control over the spirit of prophecy because that's the testimony of Jesus. It's the fullness of God's counsel. All of us are subject to it. And that's what makes us his servants. Now follow this. So this is the order. Spirit of prophecy comes first. Then the prophet comes second. Then the spirit of the prophet comes last. Now the spirit of prophecy told Jonah, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And the prophet refused because his spirit is subject to him as a prophet. He refused. God puts him through a fish. Three days and three nights. He repents. The spirit of the prophet allowed to go and fulfill the instruction of the spirit of prophecy. So he goes to Nineveh. 
when he enters Nineveh, he prophesies what God has said according to his spirit, according to the spirit of prophecy. Nineveh repents. When Nineveh repents, the spirit of prophecy changes the counsel and says, I'm not going to destroy Nineveh. Then the prophet becomes a problem to God. You say through me that you're going to destroy them. Why haven't you destroyed them? Because you are subject to me. My counsel precedes your spirit and what you're able to speak. Are you learning something? Are you hearing me? So how then can a prophet say, and, and let me take us back. Do you know why God didn't kill Nineveh, didn't destroy Nineveh? Because the Bible says he's merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. He's a gracious God. That's what the Bible says. He's a gracious God. It's out of his grace. Now the prophet did not respect the grace of God over that country. And he said that because he's a prophet, he can lock up and cut off a nation. So what about the grace of God? What about his mercies and kindness? And he would say, no, because I'm a prophet and he has anointed me, he can forsake his grace and mercy to fulfill my selfish conviction. <laughs> we have a lot to learn. Are you following what I'm saying? When you become a servant prophet, there are liberties you can't express in testimony or affirmation because you have the revelation of the heart of God toward men. Otherwise, if you're given so much power, you can destroy. Because with much power comes great responsibility. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Are we learning something? Back to the anointing. Miss Cow. So I say, it's a gift, it's a divine enablement. It consecrates you to be effective in the office which God has called you. So in the New Testament, we have a similar term for Mishkal. And the Greek word there is Krio. Acts 10.38 For how God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. See, God anointed him with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all which were oppressed because the anointing was upon him. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach the gospel to the poor and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. That's the spirit of God upon a man. It was the same that worked in Jesus was the same that worked on the prophet. It's the same thing by familiar spirit. Satan also has his own gift he puts on there. You remember the girl of divination in the book of Acts? 
The Bible says this girl brought her master's much gain. She met Paul and the rest going for service. And the spirit in her looked at Paul, but it could not pick anything because he was a man of light. Some people can prophesy to some people like us. They can't see anything except divine purpose because you have no guides, no familiar spirits following you. So, so it told Paul, these are the servant of the Most High which show us the way of salvation. What a truth. That's all it could see. That's all it could see. That's all it could see. But you see, the amazing thing with Paul and this team, the Bible says every time she was prophesying, the Bible says they were vexed, they were grieved. They were grieved. These are men of God, but they are grieved. Today, if that girl existed, she would be on the pulpit. Some men of God would put a conference. Because you see, and this is why Paul would have fallen into this. It's another teaching also. The Lord taught me this years ago. If you thrive on the praises of people, you will sink on their criticism. If you want to know that you're bound, know how you feel when people praise what God is doing on your life and you feel inflated. It's okay to affirm it and thank God for it. But once you start feeling that satisfaction and joy in the affirmation you have received or praises you have received because of what God is doing on your life, you're a candidate. You're already a candidate of offense. And I went through it years ago, but it took me through a place where one day it downed on my spirit and I settled it in my heart that no amount of praise can change my conviction on God or even inflate me one bit. When I overcame it, that's when I realized that no amount of criticism can also take me out. Because I don't thrive by the praise of men. So I can't be throttled by the criticism. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on Twitter. So I don't know opinions. The message Bible says, Proverbs 29 verses 25. Read it. It says the fear of human opinions disciples. If Paul was a man who was carried by the opinions and there's a soothsayer, there's a diviner saying, these are the servants of God. In a time where they were being criticized and persecuted for preaching the truth, you'd have said, huh, voila, I just found a voice that can affirm what's upon my life. Can you visit us on lunch hour? And that voice would be invited because it's so who Paul is. And that's the voice which would sit in the lunch hour and call out, you, lady, your name is Marian. This has happened and you understand? And then it would begin to become a prophet's conference. I'm not saying God can't reveal all these things. But Ezekiel says, when they tell you your past, when they speak of the milestones of your past, ask them, what is the Lord saying? And many of them, what is the Lord saying? Okay, you have my attention. What is the Lord saying? Then prove it. Somebody can give such a deep detail of you and give a very shallow 
you are going far. <laughs> I know that. You surely can't call out my name to tell me I'm going far. Uh, the Bible tells me that I'm going far. Hallelujah. Do I celebrate the prophetic? I celebrate the prophetic. I love the prophetic. And there are many prophets I honor. The Lord knows that. Whom I've even sent seed and said, I celebrate what's in your life. But we have familiar spirits. Anyway, back to what I was saying. Creole is the same as Mishkal. It's upon that anointed Jesus to go about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. But then there's another level of anointing. And it's called charisma. 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 Now, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 27, he explains what that anointing does. Because this one doesn't come upon, hello, this one, he abides in. It says, but the anointing which ye have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth. That anointing is not true. That anointing is truth. That anointing is not true. I repeat this. That anointing is truth. He says, and is no lie. And even as it has taught you, ye shall abide in him. Even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, listen to this. This was important to be given to you because this is the key. This is the pillar. This is the core. This is the principle that guides your spirit to the light of operating in the glory of God. This is it. Because God has explained how glory comes according to scripture. He explains how the glory comes. He tells you the anointing that abides in you. I have put something on you and that's for the gift. It will do the miracles, the signs, the wonders and everything else. But I need to put something or somebody in you to teach you. This one's primary responsibility is to teach you all things. Because he is truth. And as he has taught you, you shall abide in him. So you start to realize that the one who abides in you takes you through a consecration process enough to shrink your person to a place where you're so small enough to fit into him. To abide in him. What was abiding in you, you start to abide into. What was working through you, you become to start working by you. Did you get it? That's why I realized the secret. God teaches you to the end of yourself. 
If you still have a self yet, you're not yet taught. When God teaches you, he teaches you until you get to the end of yourself. And all you can see is him. That's a man who is taught of God. Where you can't seek the praise of men, you can't seek to exalt yourself, you can't seek to elevate yourself. You know nothing like Paul says of yourself. Serve him! Crucified and raised. That's what Paul says. When as among you I sought to know nothing, to be acquainted of nothing, to have the knowledge of nothing, serve Christ the Messiah and him crucified. That's all he knew. He went to the end of himself. That's why Paul would say, I'm dead yet I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who freely gave himself for me. He says, it's a small thing for you to judge me for I know nothing of myself. That's a man who is dead. He's no longer looking for praises. He's no longer looking for endorsements. He's no longer looking for praises. No, he's dead. Everything he leaves, he leaves in the person of Christ. As he has taught you, you abide in him. You abide in him. As he has taught you, you abide in him. The world is going to hear this. As he has taught you, you abide in him. So he teaches you. He teaches you. You keep on learning. You read the word. Because even without reading the word, if you're gifted, you're gifted. It's without repentance. Even if you don't study truth and you cannot connect revelation, if you're gifted to sing, you can sing. Even if you didn't pray and they give you a microphone, you can lead service. But it's another thing when you're worshipping from the Spirit. There's a difference. There's a difference. Are you following me, child of God? Now listen. He teaches you to the intent as to now what Paul confirms in 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18. He says, but we with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. He says we are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's how we enter the place of glory. That's how we enter the place of glory. Read the Amplified Version. The Amplified Version says, and all of us as with unveiled faces. Now it's very important for you to understand this, especially the word unveiled faces. Because many behold, but with veiled faces. And the veil is taken away at the gospel of grace. If you have not understood the gospel of grace, you pray veiled, you seek veiled, you commit veiled. Your piety is indifferent because it doesn't worship in knowledge. He says, and all of us with unveiled face, now we have the vision of Christ in the message of his grace. The Bible says, as we continue to behold, read the Amplified, in the word of God as in a mirror, in the word of God as in a mirror, in the word of the Lord as we are in a mirror, the Bible says we are constantly transfigured into his very own image. Why? Because yourself continues to give space and place for his person. He says we are constantly being transfigured into his own 
image in ever-increasing splendor from one degree of glory to another degree of glory for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit and that is the Spirit of truth that abides in you which teaches you and as he continues to teach you the Bible says and in him is all truth and there is no lie even as he has taught you you shall abide in him and so the glory of God starts to shine on your life that's the glory that lifts the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the dunghill and makes him sit among the princes. It's not a gift. It's a glory. Now you understand why we have many. Listen, I went to church. And there's a place I used to go to pray. We had anointed boys. This guy, there's one guy, he prayed the whole night. And the next day he came and told the group there. He said, I want deaf ears. And he opened every deaf ear. He was a man of anointing. But I saw over the years, I don't see the glory that should pursue a man who can open a deaf ear. They opened blind eyes. They met the crippled walk. One guy was on a mountain as a group was praying. He saw a crippled person, called him, hey, come. Said, walk in Jesus' name. Like, he's eating popcorn. But we never saw the glory that should follow the anointing. Without knowledge, you can't define glory. And what is glory? The word they use for glory is doxa. And listen to what doxa is. Doxa is praise. Doxa is honor. Listen. Doxa is magnificence. To appear magnificent in every aspect of your life. I'm talking about doxa. Doxa is excellence. Doxa is preeminence. This is the spirit, and I pray some of you receive this. The spirit of preeminence. This is the spirit that will always put you first. Whenever any man thinks to bless, they'll think you first. They'll think you first. The spirit of preeminence will always set you on the edge and ahead of advantage against anybody. This kind of spirit even if you are 2,000 people who have made a line, it will skip 1,800 people and come for you and tell you you belong on the front. And they'll hold your hand and bring you in front. Receive it in Jesus' name. Now, that's why the Bible says when you come in a service, sit behind. List a man with greater glory comes when you're seated in front. And somebody will lift you out and say, please, let us take you back. And some of you take offense. Why do they lift me from my chair? I came first. Yes, you came first. But a man with a greater weight of glory will never sit behind you when it comes to divine protocol. It can't happen. Not in any order. Not in heaven. Not on earth. It can't happen anywhere. The Bible speaks of people which are first. The Bible speaks of people in the church whom we should give double honor. Somebody shout hallelujah. Yeah. Don't seek honor given by man. It 
always leaves a pungent experience and it always drives to deeper canality. Seek for an honor only God can give you. Until he introduces you, don't introduce yourself. The day he introduces you, the day the spirit of preeminence rests on you, you will find yourself always in the first things of provision. Even when you're in a wedding, they will want to come on your table first before they pick any table. Hallelujah. You must understand this. You must sink in your spirit. Everywhere I go, in every place I step, men and, and women who walk with me, they'll tell you. Every place I step in my life, there is somebody seeking to put me first. I don't seek it. In fact, many a time I hide away from it. But they'll always seek to put me first. That's not something I fought for. That is something God puts on you. That's called glory. Now, if somebody's envious of that, then they're setting themselves on the God who put that on my life. Glory is a weight and every one of us has their own weight until you get a certain weight. Wait on God. Wait on God. Don't fight for ranks. Don't fight for positions. Not in your organization. Don't fight. Not even in the church. Don't fight for favor. You seek God. The favor will come. Seek God. The glory will come. I remember one time when I was in New Jersey preaching in faith fellowship and the Creflo Dollars were there, the Del Brunners were there, the cream de la cream of America was standing on that altar and I was standing on that altar at that very young man, very young man, I was young among these people and these men were very old and I asked myself one day, what am I doing here? Receiving the same rights and privileges of men which had served God longer than my years of existence. Because something took me up there and it wasn't my intellect. I didn't manipulate a system. I didn't call somebody. No. A man flew from out of the country, came in Uganda, sat him in a meeting, had me preaching, and he said, I'll take you everywhere I'm able to open a door. And the rest was history. I've stood before presidents, before kings, and I can tell you, if I tell you my family history, where I really come from. The anointing was not enough. I needed a certain glory. Magnificence. Doxa also means dignity. Doxa also means grace. Doxa also means majesty. So you start functioning under some realm of royalty. You're treated like a king. You're treated like a queen. It also means splendor. It also means brightness. So you remember the priests back in the day when they were ending the service, they used to pronounce a benediction over the people and they would say, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious to thee. The Lord lift his countenance upon thee and give you peace. That's what they meant when they said, the Lord make his face shine upon you because they have finished releasing the oracles of truth. And so the next thing that should follow the oracle 
is the shining of a man's face to carry the countenance of God to go out in a meeting but you're not going alone to go in an interview but there's something you're carrying on your face to go for that business transaction but you don't go alone they're not looking at the shape of your nose they're not looking at the color of your eyes they see things that they cannot define you get to a certain place there's a place where sometimes I stand in the glory and some people can't even look at me or they just see light sometimes I get in a certain place and all you can see is light at least people have testified that I'm not bossing I'm just testifying but I'm dark-skinned are you following what I'm saying God can do things on some of you this is what you needed this is what you needed this is what you needed to understand so when you get a someone and put it in your ear i want you to know what you're doing every time you sit in front of a television set you're putting on youtube and you're listening to a man of god preaching i want you to know what you're doing to yourself every time you get your bible and you're studying to read i want you to know what that means every time you consecrate yourself and go somewhere and say let me go and seek the face of god and you read the scriptures and then you start connecting and writing notes i want you to know what that means every time you're going to sleep and you switch on your phone some of you you even leave it running as you're sleeping in the night you are sleeping in your body but your spirit is receiving something I want you to know what that means it might take five years six years ten years eight years eighteen years but this is what I know for sure one time you will stand in a place that only glory can introduce Isaiah 60 verses 1 arise Time for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. This is a season that you're going to shine more than ever before. Forget those who hate you, forget the things that are not working, forget the things that are not agreeable. Let me prophesy upon your life that everything you have been hearing in this season and the words that have been coming through, God has been preparing you for something so mighty. Somebody shout hallelujah. The Bible says for the earth, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How will that knowledge of the glory of God be filled on the earth when we don't have objects or elements of the manifestation or expression of that glory? You are the chosen vessel to reveal the knowledge of the glory of God. For God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, countenance of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Open your mouth and let's talk to God. As we see May we know
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for today. We receive all that you have prepared for us. Even things words cannot express, explain. We submit to your will and purpose to lead, direct, teach, humble, correct, myself inclusive, Lord. In Jesus' name. May we see your glory like never before. May we experience your glory like never before. May somebody have an experience of God's glory. Receive it, somebody. Receive it. Thank you, Lord. Now, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, if you're here and you want to give your life to Jesus, just repeat this as after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you shed your blood for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Today, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. Amen.